Christian marriage, as we say often, is an office. It's an office to fulfill a calling to image the love between Christ and his church. And, and so this is big stuff. I mean, this is really, really important. And that's what drives me uh, in these sessions is to just think about that reality that we go out into this world to image uh, Jesus and his church and to reflect that. And we certainly fall very far short, but we are in the game. We're slogging along and fighting to be faithful to him. And I'm thankful for those gathered here to that end. I'll admit I'd rather be where you are than here. I, I would like to be learning about um, marriage. I am learning about it, obviously, as I prepare these things, but I, I certainly don't stand as a guru or one that has everything figured out. Uh, I just uh, want to share some ideas that I've worked on and read about and brought together here today. I hope they're stimulating and encouraging, but um, I certainly don't feel that uh, I speak out of great success. I just speak out of faithfulness to the Lord, and I'm thankful for that and thankful for Beth and, and uh, grateful for what God's done in our life uh, to help us to follow his word and to know the, the flourishing that comes in doing that. And so I'm thankful for this opportunity. But I, I need the Lord's help. We need the Lord's help. And we've been praying that he would provide that here. As we come into the session, I think you have notes there that will kind of steer you through the basic flow of thought. Uh, so if you want to look at that. Um, I'm going to get this thing off here. There we go. We'll uh, limit ourselves to that today as far as uh, direction, but I want to talk first about defining marital intimacy. I need to do that for this session as well as for the one to come, but first of all to note the distinction between marital intimacy and sexual intimacy. Sexual desire is a subset of marital intimacy, and I want to look at it that way. So by marital intimacy, I'm speaking of the overarching desire that you would have as husband and wife to be together. I want to be with him. I want to be with her. That's what I mean by marital intimacy. There's a, it certainly involves sexuality, so, but to, it's to live life in your mate's presence. I long for that. I desire that. Uh, I, we live life together willingly and joyfully. Now, obviously, when a couple does not really want to be together, it has uh, some pretty negative effects upon their sexual relationship, right? It, it might be dead. Uh, or it, it may be, have become a perfunctory ritual. It, it's possible that it's just obligation or play-acting or something along those lines. Uh, that these are some of the negative results. But the fundamental problem is not one sexual relationship. The fundamental problem goes a lot deeper, and that is just a reflection of that deeper problem. Uh, it's not that your sex life is off track, it's that your relationship is broken. And so that's what we need to focus on. What we want to talk about here is we talk about intimacy, we need spiritual transformation to change us so that we want to be together. And God is at work in doing that, I think, in many of our relationships. Others struggling more. But this is something we want, want to focus on. Back to the point then, just know this, by marital intimacy, when I use that phrase throughout the day, always including 
a sexual relationship, but never focused just there, always on the larger ideas. That makes sense? I think we understand that. Let's talk then, secondly, about the biblical roots of marital intimacy. At its purest, a Christian couple's desire to be together, to be with one another, is rooted in the more fundamental soil of God's desire to be with us. I want to be with my wife. You want to be with your husband, ultimately, because God has wanted to be with us. The ultimate blessing of redemption is expressed in the biblical theme of God dwelling with his people. If you haven't seen that theme, watch for it. It's really pervasive throughout the scriptures. We think of the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. They were with him. They were in his presence. And they wanted to be there until they didn't. Moses, remember the the battle with God in prayer. If you're not going to go with us to the promised land, take me out of this. I don't want to go. You must go with us. Your presence must journey with us. Jesus, we speak of him as Emmanuel, God with us, as he takes on flesh and comes among us. The new Jerusalem Revelation 21.3 reads, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God with us, this major theme of Scripture, and it's really our wanting to be with one another is just a reflection of that larger theme. Our triune God is a relational being. Throughout all eternity, I believe there was beautiful fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. Now in the redemption that we have in Christ through His death and resurrection, we are redeemed to enter into relationships of love where we want to be with one another as we want to be with God. So this intimacy... The desire to walk in loving fellowship with God is imaged in the intimacy of a man and a woman in marriage, and particularly in Christian marriage. We are, enjoy, we are saved to enjoy this relationship, this desire, this longing to be with one another is something that God has provided as a gift. This truth should probably strike us as somewhat disconcerting, even convicting. I have been given this life and I have been given marriage in order to have this longing because there's times when it's missing, there's times when it becomes twisted, there's times when we relate to one another in such a way that says, I don't want to be with you. I don't, I want my way. I want to be alone. I want to be isolated. I want to do life like I want to do life. In our sin, we enter those moments. But I hope this will strike us not only in a way of conviction, but also to strike us as glorious. Knowing that God is ever laboring to help believers realize our purpose. Now with that set up, I'd like to focus in this session then, on the place that words play 
in the pursuit of this intimacy, this oneness, this longing to be together, words play a very significant role. Looking at the relationship of words to marital intimacy, let's tie those together here, but then we'll move to more practical thoughts about uh, how we speak with one another. But words have the power to nourish or they have the power to wither desire. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The words we speak have power, and they produce fruit. There's an outcome that flows from the words that we speak with one another. So I, can, I, I think it's fair to say you've never spoken a meaningless word. Now, it might seem like it. You want toast? No, it's all right. I've never said that. I always say, yes, please. <laughs> it seems like a meaningless word. But we know, don't we, just in the tone, there's a message. You don't speak meaningless words. We speak redemptive words or we speak destructive words, wise words or foolish words. Even mundane words are holy or corrupting in some sense. Now, there's obviously a lot of other pipelines to marital intimacy, but I don't think it's possible to overestimate the power of words to draw us together, and to create that environment where we want to be with one another. Words have a tremendous power, and we want to focus on that today. So imagine that we brought up here a recording system, and we informed you as a couple that what we're going to do in this seminar is listen to every word you've spoken this last week. And we're all going to analyze and listen to what was said between the two of you, the tone, the attitude, the words, the communication. What was said in your home? What was said in your relationship? Those words would paint a fairly clear picture of the health of your marriage. It would be pretty clear for everyone to see, and maybe more clear for others to see than it is for you to see. Of course, those words would reveal, ultimately, your relationship with the Lord. But it's also true that those very words are serving to water the garden of marital intimacy or to poison it. Words are being used in one of those ways. And again, I don't don't mean to to oversimplify it. Uh, Our words are complicated, and there's a lot of different pieces there, and there's misunderstanding and the like, but I think it's a fair question to ask, are the words that I am speaking to my mate increasing his or her desire to be with me? Am I employing words that way? Again, before we move to the more practical considerations I'd like to bring out two theological realities here. First of all, words as the image of God. As we've been saying on Sunday mornings, God speaks. Our triune God, by His very nature, reveals Himself by the medium of language. As we meet God in the book of Genesis, He speaks. He creates with the sheer power of His words. God then speaks blessing 
to Adam and Eve. And he relates to them in the garden. He uses language to settle, to commission, to counsel, to discipline Adam and Eve. God also gives them the capacity for speech to speak with one another. God talks to them. He blesses them. And then as early as Genesis 3, Eve uses that speech to do what? To evade God. To accuse Him. And uses speech to attack all that has happened that has gone wrong in that moment. Adam uses speech to attack his wife, accusing God with his failure. That woman over there, that woman you gave me, she. I mean, just think of where they've fallen, from, which, from the place to which they've fallen. That woman there, the woman that you gave me, she. I, it's just a guess. But I'm thinking that after that performance, I'm not thinking they had sex that night. I don't know. But I just don't think it probably was the case. It might be the first time that she rolled over and turned it back to Adam. That woman, she. It certainly wouldn't be a surprise, would it, if those words cooled the relationship. Those very words. Now, obviously, a lot of other things are wrong here in Genesis 3, but certainly those words were harmful. By giving Adam and Eve language, God had given them the power to image him, to use words to lovingly bridge the chasm between their souls. But Adam and Eve miserably failed to use speech in that way. And they're using speech in the garden in a way that puts up a wall between them, a chasm between them, maybe not fully understanding what they're doing, but they're miserable because in part of what they have said about one another. And there they stand in their pitiful leaf costumes, heads hanging in God's presence. We know, of course, the story that through the salvation, through the redemption that is won in Christ, their speech is rescued. One will come to redeem and to unify again a man and a woman in the imitation of the love between Christ and His church. And so that moves, as we think of that redemption theme, to words as the incarnation of love. John 3.16, God demonstrates His love for us by giving us the living Word. And think of that very clearly. The Word, Christ, our Lord and Savior. By taking on flesh, He incarnates love. John stresses this point in 1 John 3.16, By this we know, love, that He laid down His life for us. The eternal Word coming to earth, demonstrating love, incarnating love, by this self-sacrifice, this giving away of Himself. And as the Word made flesh, Jesus personifies God's love by dying for us. Word and deed coming together to incarnate infinite love. Sending Christ to live and die and live again for our eternal good. And so with that triumphant, it is finished, Christ dealt the death blow to death for us. And now His words are our life. 
His words, our life, the living word incarnating love, now giving to us the capacity of speech to do the same, to use our words. And circling back to our words, one problem we suffer is that we don't think very carefully about what words are, or at least not what they're meant to be. Words are more than an exchange of ideas. They're certainly that. But they are more than simply conveying to your mate what you think in the moment. Communicating under the lordship of Christ, words are a giving away of yourself. They are a communicating of your love. But, it's, but they, are, they are to be love, a giving away of yourself to your mate. Do we think of speech that way? What I say is a gift God's love to me, my love to my mate, in all of our speech. I'm giving away myself. Speaking should be seen as a quest to know and to be known by your mate, as an outflow of divine love for us. And here's the other problem. Our words flow from hearts tainted by selfishness, by smallness, by sensuality, by sin in a general sense. And so there's a blockage there that does not allow that, allow that love to flow and to genuinely communicate in a way that is pouring out of love. Things get in the way. My heart gets in the way. And at the heart of that, of course, is my relationship with the Lord. But since our love for God is deficient, our words do not flow with love to others and we do not... and we reap then the damage of our tongues. So what we need to do is just to battle with this and to remember that words are given to me as a gift from God in order that through them I might incarnate God's love by giving myself away to my wife or my husband. Let me say that again. Words are given to me as a gift from God in order that by them I might incarnate God's love by giving myself away to my wife or my husband. Without those truths established, I mean, it's kind of like uh, the epistles of Paul. We, we, we look at the deep theology first, and then we move to the practical. And I, uh, Without those ideas established, we don't have a practical. Then we're just learning rules and trying to put them into use. But I, I have to lock everything into the love of God his word made flesh to redeem me so that I'm using words that truly flow with love toward my mate. And I realize that those words are not given to me as tools to get my way. Speech is given to me to know and to be known in love. And without that foundation, we've got nothing in the practical realm. But as we work that out in the practical realm, we want to talk here next about words that wither marital intimacy. And I'm not trying to be exhaustive here. What I'm hoping is that just through striking at a few illustrations and ideas, there might be uh, some conviction, there might be some opportunity for us to see things from a new standpoint. And I, I trust that God will, will do a work in and through us as we consider these ideas. Uh, so again, not trying to be exhaustive, but the power of words to kill intimacy. We need to come to terms with this. We 
have come to terms with it. Uh, you're, you're married. You come to terms with this pretty quickly. But uh, thinking about it deeply and concentrating on it, the power of words to kill intimacy. In our uh, 400 square foot apartment when we were first married, that we had this really nice plant. It was it was about nearly five feet, five and a half feet tall, and it was really flourishing in a sunny little window that we had there. And I, and I was the dutiful new husband and made sure that I kept the thing watered, and it was kind of a gen, uh, um, tender plant. And so we had a water bottle, and I would spray the water bottle, and the thing was doing really well until the day that I picked up Beth's hairspray and put that on the plant. Uh, it didn't work so well. And that thing just began to shrink and shrivel. And I thought, I mean, it's not getting enough. So I put more hairspray on it. You know, I just kept day after day putting this hairspray on it. The bottles got mixed up. I don't know what it was, some old bottle or something, and dumb Dan. But I'm killing this plant. But one little spray at a time, and eventually it just gave up the ghost, and it was done. And then we, you know, kind of looked at the bottle and realized what I'd done. But think of that with, as your words. Are you spraying on the plant of your marriage water or hairspray? Now, hairspray didn't kill it in two hours. It was days. But little by little it shriveled because it wasn't being nourished. And in some Christian homes, I trust not in yours, but sometimes every one of us can speak those words that are just hairspray. They're just chemical that destroys. It's not helping anything. But those words flow from us and cause damage uh, in, our, in our relationship. For some of you, indeed, on some level, all of us are words to one another as husband and wife wither the relationship. They can breathe breath, they, they, can, they have the power to breathe life into our marriage, but they have the power to wither and shrivel. Spurgeon said, the flesh can bear only a certain number of wounds and no more. I mean, you can torture somebody and eventually they die. But the soul can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. And there might be nothing that can so damage a relationship as the words we speak. Well, some common categories of withering speech. One, for instance, is by contentious warring. This is a kind of words that slash and pierce our mates. We use words to fight for our position with little or no regard to the harm our words may cause in the process. I want to be right. I want to stand out. Sometimes it's on the attack. I try to break you down and beat you. My argumentation, battling with words, I want to get my way, I want to be seen as the wise one, I want to be seen as the right one, I want to get, uh, I'm the insightful one, I'm the discerning one here, and you're not. It's a battle of words. How many husbands take up this kind of withering attack against their wives all the time and then wonder why she's cold in bed? Because she's being attacked with your words. You're spraying hairspray all over, to use the analogy. And there's going to be a, a, a result. You're withering her spirit as she struggles to want to be with you, let alone to celebrate your union romantically. I don't even know if I want to be with him. 
because the words wither. Or they can be in defense. I defend myself against your attack in pride, in self-pity, in anger. I lash out to fight back at the assault that I assume is coming from you to me. I perceive it to be your assault against my person, against my opinion. And the war comes. We bubble up with words that are nothing more than staking our ground and fighting for our position. And I ask you in light of what Christ has done, is that why he gave you words? Is that why he gave me speech to use it that way, to go to war and fight? No. Unconstructive criticism. We can deliver such words with subtle humor, with persistent nitpicking, or harsh, angry, direct criticism. There's a lot of ways to kind of hide this and work around this, but it's not constructive criticism, but destructive. And the criticism may be fair, as far as it stands, but it's delivered with words that do not build up, that do not encourage, that that only humiliate and tear down. And sadly, such unloving words are easy to forget by the speaker and hard to forget by the hearer. Isn't that not an evidence of our depravity? You can say such things and you don't even remember it. But something can be said to you that way and you can never forget it. David Volpe says, The speaker may forget, but the listener remembers. The insult lightly regarded can burn for years, can sear the soul. Words can indeed hurt as much as sticks and stones, bruising more deeply and lasting far longer. And probably all of us have some experience of that, to know how unjust criticism, unconstructive criticism can wound. Joyless grumbling. We use words to grump, to complain, to bellyache. Even if nothing you grumble about is directly related to your wife or to your husband. Such speech withers marital desire. Is there anyone more unlovely than a grumbler? And yet we like to do it. And maybe we like to do it particularly with our mate who's kind of a captive audience and needs to listen to our grumping and our complaining and our belly aching. It's not attractive. It's not what speech was given for. It's just ugly. It dishonors God. It's uniquely incapable of incarnating God's love. And there's a lot of subcategories here we could chase. It could be discontent. It could be just general crabbiness or whining. You want to kill marital intimacy? Be a whiner. Whine about everything. Not getting your way. Things don't go the way that you want them to go. That is unlovely. It's not love. Uncourageous worry. There's a sort of worry, such as the Apostle Paul expressed for the churches, that is noble. I think there's a kind of worry that we have for our children that's appropriate. Some sort of level of concern for them. But we can speak words of fearful distrust in the sovereign care of God, and such words eat away at the marriage. We're we're really expressing fear, and no one is edified by that. Now, there's an appropriate way to discuss fear with one another. We all will. We'll have various ways and means of fearing things, and we need to talk about them and talk through them. But if your speech is that which is simply uncourageous, 
No, that's very unattractive. It's not loving. And there's a deep spiritual issue at stake here, or, or that is being evidenced here. Belittling dismissal. This is where we just downplay what is of concern to our mate. When we speak on loving words that say, I have no concern for what concerns you. It is, it is unimportant. Now, there are some conversations that need to end. Some conversations are not productive. They just need to be stopped. But that's different than the belittling dismissal. I don't really care about what you're saying. And a lot of times, the danger of these categories is that they tend to think of them in isolation. They're all interrelated, right? It might be I'm expressing worry or fear, or I'm just whining about something, and then the other responds with this belittling dismissal, and you need to be dismissed. But not in that way. Feigned agreement. These are words we say, in so many words, to avoid conflict, to avoid the hard work of understanding you, to avoid responsibility, I'll just agree. I don't want to go there, so okay, whatever you say, dear. It's not love. It's avoidance. And then voluminous silence. Yes, it's an oxymoron. But married couples can get to the place where they start choosing not to talk and that sends a very loud message of disregard and disrespect. Now let me talk just real quickly. There's a few of you here. I'm not thinking of anybody, honestly. There's a few of you here who talk too much. You process by speech. And you're just talking, talking, talking all the time. There may be need for the discipline of silence. The discipline of learning that I don't have to articulate every thought that goes through my mind, and it may not be loving to do so. There may be a strategy for some that would be helpful. Learn to hold your tongue. Know that, okay, that's my deal. I'm not the kind that clams up. I'm not the kind that doesn't say enough. I'm the kind that says too much. So know that that has to be considered. But for... On the other side of that problem are couples that choose not to speak for one reason or another. It may be the occasional silent treatment due to some offense, some disagreement. It may be a pattern of unloving disinterest in knowing you're made. It could be a lot of different things. It might be a man who comes home at night and retreats to the family room, kisses his wife on the cheek, and that's about the end of it. Goes to the family room to read the paper, to surf the web, to close his eyes, and the message is, what? If we don't talk, we're better off. May not even intend to send that message. But he's just saying, I'm too tired to talk to you. And he may be tired. And it takes some work. I encourage those of you who are coming home from work, men or women, you're coming home from a full day of work, you're tired, you've spoken all the words you care to speak for the day. Now I'm talking mostly to men. <laughs> but uh, you're, you, you just, you've had it. In the car on the way home, coach yourself forward. Don't just think about what's in the rearview mirror, get home and like, I'm done. Coach yourself forward and say, I'm going to be meeting my wife. I'm going to be meeting my husband. And I need to keep loving. 
not woe is me, but to just coach yourself, counsel yourself. It's time to talk. And again, there's some need to talk less, but there are some and some relationships that struggle. And for those of you that are just, I mean, 100 words to one person for you is eight. Now, there's a particular challenge there. It's not wrong God's wired you a bit differently. It's not wrong to be at someone of very few words, but there's some people we know that can say 100 words and they mean 10, and there's people that can say 10 words and it means 100, right? Where, where you don't say a lot, know that there needs to be the growth of a discipline to listen, to hear, and to choose to speak, just as on the other side, some need the discipline of not saying everything that comes to their mind. We need to recognize that communication is not about me being comfortable doing what I want, but how do I love my mate? And we need to weed out some of these disastrous, withering words. So let's talk about redeemed words, words that nourish marital intimacy. The power of words to nourish intimacy. First of all, here's a danger. Let me call you out right here. Yeah, I get it. That's the parallel outline point to the previous point. He's got to include this here because we're Western thinkers and it's logical. And yeah, so I, I tune out. Don't tune out. Words have the power to nourish your words in your marriage can actually change the marriage. They can nourish good. I want us to consider that point. They have the power to change the relationship. Take this reality to heart and respond with appropriate conviction of failure, of weakness, and the simple lack of verbal skill. We talk too much, we talk too little, we talk too selfishly, and on it goes. But the beauty is, in the gift of speech, our words can actually nourish and enhance the relationship. So, again, in this list, we're just looking at a few basic categories, and they all overlap. But first of all, nourishing speech would include Godward devotion. And by this, I speak of reading the Bible, the word being sounded in the home and in your relationship as a couple, praying together, words going together to God as we speak uh, words of devotion and prayer, speaking about God in the Christian life. And I, I hesitate to make this a separate category because I hope we can see this is to pervade all of the categories and to pervade all of life. Not that we have these little moments of family worship and then we don't talk about God again. But all of life, speaking about it from the perspective of who God is, what He thinks, what He has revealed, we talk about the Lord and our relationship as believers in Him. That speech that is necessary to nurture intimacy as a, as a couple, along with a thousand other things. Um, there was a, a, a couple that came to our church some years ago. They're long gone, moved away, but uh, they, God used this church to really transform their marriage. And it was a miserable, miserable mess. I mean, it was one of the worst situations that you could imagine as far as brokenness between this couple. 
But I remember one day sitting in their um, living room as God had done a great work to turn around their relationship. And I remember the husband saying to me, when we came to this church, we never talked about God. It's just what we just talked about mundane life. He said, now we talk about him all the time. Now, that's beautiful. That's change. That, to, to, to be talking about the Lord does one very practical thing. It brings him into the conversation. It reminds us that he's hearing every word, that he's with us all the time. It's not just when other people see us, but he is always there with us. So a Godward orientation in the way that we talk about life, we talk about the Lord, his word, what he means to us, and how we should interpret life. Secondly, biblical encouragement. It's a speaking, not simple, sappy, or trivial words of praise, but genuine edification, words that inspire, that build up, that bless, that express love for one another. To, to build the other person up with your words. This is a skill, and we've got to work on it, but I think we pretty much know when we're speaking those words. If it's just sappy praise, there's not a lot of, that's not very um, contenting. It's not very uh, satisfying to either one. But when we speak words of edification, we know it. We know when we're seeking to encourage. And on a, on a maybe um, practical level, just a more mundane level, and that's just gracious compliment. This is the law of kindness on the tongue as Proverbs speaks of it, a simple respect for one another. It's amazing how courteous words spoken in the ebb and flow of our mundane labors can lift the spirit. And it's also amazing, Dan, how often you don't speak those words. Just courteous thank you. Just recognition of one another. Just speaking with kindness to each other. Taking one another for granted and speaking no words of common decency is a foolish misuse of words. Not understanding the power of how words work and how they function as an expression of love. Next, cooperative accomplishment. I am told Beth this, but <laughs> this is lack of communication. It's also called a life that's flying. Uh, but we're painting our uh, our room our life's in an absolute disastrous mess you know there's nothing in there and we we can't find anything it's it's just a wreck but we were in the closet pulling nails out of out of the closet uh just to so we can paint it and i just the thought just came to me i just love being with her i love working with her i love getting things done with beth it's just a joy Usually. <laughs> Not always. We have our moments, but you, you live life together and you're accomplishing a lot of things. And I, I, I think if, if Beth had lived in a different day and had pursued the education, she could have been an engineer, a mechanical engineer. She just knows how things are put together and she can fix things, unlike most women I've ever known. And uh, that usually creates some real tension with Dan, who's an absolute idiot when it comes to <laughs> mechanical engineering. I know where my son got it, from my grandfather and from his mother, not from his dad. 
So we get in these battles of words because we're working together and trying to get something done and she sees it one way, the right way, and Dan sees it another way, the wrong way, and yet again she loves to show me how dumb I am with her words and I love to show her I can actually be right. And it happens once every other year. I get it right and boy do I like to let her know that, that I was right. You know this, right? As we work together, we're in close uh, quarters, and sometimes it can get difficult. Um, You'll spend a lot of time planning. I count that as kind of under this category, getting things done, talking about your property, your house, your cars, your vacation plans, the things you're going to do with the kids, and where you're going to go to school, and what's going to happen, and how do we fix this problem. You, a lot of speech goes there. Now, let me help us here, I hope, in that as we're doing work, we have to use more unmitigated speech. That's just how you get work done. And that's where Beth and I love working together. We do have our problems in our moments, but for the most part, we love to work and get things done together. But you've got to have the ability as a couple to use unmitigated speech. What does that mean? Mitigated speech. Mitigated. Honey, if it's not too much to ask, would you mind pulling the table back a slight bit? If it's no trouble, please, sweetheart, just pull it back, will you? That's mitigated speech. You're mitigating how that sounds and how that comes across. What is unmitigated speech? Ow! Pull the table back, you're smashing my finger. Right? You see the difference. The ones, all this careful language to make sure we haven't troubled one another. That's right, particularly when you're confronting your mate, when you're seeking to correct. Then you want to be mitigated. When you're working together, it's in the trench, elbowing one another, and you've got to just say it the way that it is. Do you have the ability to do that? I'm not picking on one or the other. It could go either way. But if your husband, in the midst of work, has always got to use mitigated speech, he's always got to be, please, dear, would you mind doing this? Could we consider this? What do you think about this? Would this possibly be a way to do You're not going to get anything done. And what he's doing is tiptoeing around you because you're so sensitive that he's afraid he's going to have a disaster and so you get less and less and less and less done because of that sensitivity. Or it could turn the other way around. It might be him that's the sensitive one in this case. But when we work together, we've got to be able to speak straight stuff and do so lovingly, knowing that's kind of the rules of engagement. Are you learning to get things done together or do all your work projects, all of your accomplishments demand isolation? You go away and I'll do this. I'll go away, you get that done. Now, there's a lot of jobs you have to do on your own. Don't get me wrong. But where can you use words in in a working relationship where you can accomplish things together as a couple? Thoughtful improvement. This is words that help your mate make progress in life or improve a process. So you see a better way to get something done. Your mate is wasting time or money on a habit that needs to change, make something, something maybe needs repair. So she says to him, I don't know why you 
put up with that mower. Maybe it's time. We have the money. Do you, I, I appreciate so much. You have been so frugal to keep repairing that lawnmower. And, and I'm, I, I love the way you've attacked this, but I think it's time. I, I think it's just time we get a new lawnmower. And he, of course, says, no way. It's the principle of the matter. I am not getting rid of this thing until I get it to work. And she stomps off and, with a big ug and slams the door as she goes into the house. Or she says to him, why do you put up with that stupid thing? Why do you keep going after this mower? It's trash. Get rid of it and quit doing this. And he says, no, i got to stick with it. She says, Ugh, goes in and slams the door. Well, which one is effective? Neither one in this case, uh, because he's being dense, uh, probably. But you, you see the difference between the two. How do we go about improving one another, helping one another in this improvement? Constructive correction gets a little deeper into it. Here we're actually saying there's something that's wrong in your life. If you can't do that, you're not communicating effectively. There has to be an ability to lovingly correct one another, both to do it in a way that's constructive and to receive it in a way that's gracious. Earnest discovery, and I have to just plow through these last ones, but earnest discovery, listening to one another, hearing one another, spending time talking and learning. Who is this man? Who is this woman? I've got that all figured out. No, you don't. You'll be learning for the rest of your life. Playful friendship, a sense of humor is essential in your conversations with each other. Can you tease each other? Can you joke with each other? Can you have fun with words? Varying levels, different sorts of personalities, but you must be able to laugh together, recreate together. Romantic celebration is fairly obvious, but words that speak uh, appreciation, that treasure one another, that are romantic in their nature? Do they ever flow from your mouth? There are couples that get to the point where that just got stopped up and quit. Why? Heartfelt repentance and forgiveness. Do you ever speak the words to your mate, I was wrong, please forgive me? Do you respond, well, give me a couple years and I'll think about it. I've asked forgiveness of people and they've looked at me and they haven't given it. They just won't tell you, I forgive you. That's never happened with Beth. If I've asked her to forgive me, she's always forgiven me. And I've sought to do the same with her. Do you do that? Do you speak those words? That is necessary to nourish the relationship. When we consider that the words we speak are a gift from the God whose words created us and saved us, it's a joy to lovingly nurture this relationship.